2 Samuel 11, and you might be thinking to yourself, hang on a second, Brandon, I thought that this was a sermon series going through some psalms, and it is, however, we're going to take um, a few minutes this morning and get a little bit of the historical background of the psalm that we're going to be looking at this morning, and we're going to be turning over to Psalm 51, so if you wanted to get your finger over in Psalm 51, that's fine as well, but we're going to go ahead and begin in 2 Samuel in chapter 11. Up until this point in David's life, we're going to, again, we're looking at the Psalms of David, several of them as we go through some of these weeks in the summertime. But as we've gone through and we think about the life of David, up until this point when he's writing Psalm 51, he's had an incredible life. I mean, some of you know, some of you have named your children after this guy, David. This is a really significant man in Scripture, and he's had an incredible life up until this point in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and Psalm 51. You remember, he began his life as a shepherd. He was a shepherd boy. Remember that? He was the youngest of all of his brothers. Um, you remember eventually that uh, it's the prophet Samuel ended up coming to his family in order to anoint the second king um, of Israel. So after King Saul, it was going to be uh, this David. So the prophet... Uh, Samuel goes up and he anoints David. He's the youngest of all of his brothers. He's almost the most unworthy of all of his brothers, but he gets anointed anyway by Samuel. And then pretty quickly, as you go in 1 Samuel, you get to 1 Samuel chapter 17, and you remember what happens. Probably one of the most famous stories that we have in the entire Bible, right? David and Goliath. I mean, how many sermons have you heard on David and Goliath? It's just a mammoth story in the Samuel account. Famous story where this young guy goes up with a slingshot, right? And he kills this great giant who was mocking the name of God and who was mocking the armies of Israel. But upon killing Goliath, you remember that David's popularity, just it spikes. It spikes. He, he, they get back to Jerusalem. He, he ends up marrying Saul's daughter. So he, now he's married to the daughter of the king. He ends up becoming best friends with Jonathan, who was the king's son. So he's got the, a wife who's the daughter of the king. He's got the best friend who's the son of the king. And then when they get to Israel, you remember that the people were singing, Saul has struck down his thousands, but David has struck down his ten thousands. And if you know the accounts in, 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 Sam, in the two Samuels, you remember that Saul goes into a complete jealous rage, doesn't he? Goes into an absolute jealous rage over how popular David had become. And so Samuel contains much of Saul's quest to kill David. The fir- first Samuel particulars filled with Saul's intent on killing David. Yet David is merciful to Saul. You see a couple times where David actually had the opportunity to kill the king. He had the opportunity to kill Saul in the cave. But you remember that one time specifically, he he ended up cutting part of his garment off instead of killing him. Just to be able to show him, hey, I got some of your garment. I could have killed you, man. But I decided that I would be merciful to you. He would not raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. So anyway, Saul, he ends up backing off of David. He says, okay, David, I'm not going to be pursuing you anymore. And then Saul ends up dying in battle. So the first king of Israel is dead. And so now as the anointed one, David is going to rise up and he's going to be the king of Israel and the king of Judah. So things are beginning to ramp up here even more for David. As you move into 2 Samuel, which is where we'll be this morning, but we're going to be a little past chapter 7, where this incredible covenant is made with David. 
God actually, he comes and he makes a covenant with David. God tells David that his, his kingdom is going to be an everlasting kingdom, that it's going to be established forever. And of course, this runs up right to Christ, and David is born in the line of Christ, and he's, of course, the eternal fulfillment of all of this. But David goes on to be blessed by God. He, he goes on to win many battles. He continues extending just loving kindness to his people. He loves his people. He's a good king with the help of God until we get to 2 Samuel chapter 11. So David has lived an extremely extraordinary life. Yet in the springtime of one year, the king did something that almost seems out of character. We know him to be a, a good man. We know him to be kind. We know him to be merciful. All of those things. He, he's a strong man that fights for the Lord. I mean, we read some of his psalms. Like we looked at the, the first psalm a couple of weeks ago. was Psalm 23. And he says, the Lord is my shepherd. And he just seems to have this incredible dependence upon the Lord as his shepherd. And then last week, oh Lord, our Lord, how, how majestic is your name in all of the earth, right? So if anybody has an intimate relationship with God, it's this guy David, right? If anybody has a high view of this God, it's going to be David. If anybody has had somebody with him through valleys, through struggles, through the killing of a giant, through so many different things, it is David. So it's almost shocking when we see that David stays home in Jerusalem from battle one spring and begins an incredible series of wicked acts. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 11. I'll start reading a verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Reba. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and he was walking on the roof of his house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So what you have here in these first few verses is you have a bored king who is abdicating his responsibility to go to battle, to lead Israel into battle, and you have a beautiful woman bathing on a rooftop, which is a complete recipe for disaster. As verse 5 says, Bathsheba gets pregnant. Look in verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all of the servants of his lord and did not go to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall then I go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. So David, or so Bathsheba gets pregnant by David, and so David goes ahead and he sets plan A into motion. 
He gets Uriah back to Jerusalem from the war so that he can get Uriah back with Bathsheba so that he will have sex with her and so that it would be perceived then that the conceived child is not anybody else's but Uriah's. But Uriah, unfortunately for David, as we read, refuses to go into his own house and spend time with his wife. In fact, Uriah almost becomes this example to David of what David should have been. So David here, he he should have been preserving and protecting Israel. Instead, now he's got to preserve and protect himself. He's got to kind of back out a little bit and say, hang on, I got to protect myself from all of this problem that could happen. I got to keep this private. So since David was unable to get Uriah back with his wife, um, he has to go to plan B and look at verse 14 of what plan B is going to be. In the morning... David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband, also died. Now look down at verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now turn over to Psalm chapter 51. That's a lot of reading, but important to get the context as we move into Psalm 51. So we see here in these... Verses that we just read, that plan B worked. Uriah is dead. Bathsheba goes and she marries her husband's murderer. And they have a son together. So the chapter begins with David seeking out his own pleasure. But now it ends with an indication of the Lord's displeasure. So the child is born. So however, Nathan the prophet goes to David and tells him that the child is going to die. But look in verse, or actually you probably have a heading right before verse 1 in Psalm 51. So I'm going to go ahead and actually read that here. So it says, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So you remember that. After David had committed these sins, God sends the prophet Nathan to go and to tell David that he had done wrong. That God was extremely displeased with what he had done. You remember that Nathan essentially gives David a a, a parable. And he says, hey, there was this guy who had all the sheep in the world, but yet he went and stole a sheep from the guy who only had one. Indicating David went and stole Uriah's one beautiful, lovely sheep for himself. And you remember that Nathan says to David, he says, you are the man. You are the one who has done this great wickedness in the sight of the Lord. So now look at David's response. He realizes that he has sinned and it's ever before him. Look at verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. 
Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. You will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on the altar. So you can get a real sense as you go through Psalm 51 that David is sorry. That David is repentant. That this is a a penitential psalm, one of seven that we have within the psalms. It's a confession of his personal sin. And although it's born out of his own personal sin and his own struggle, this psalm is not just for David. You notice, again, the heading and the title. It says, To the Choir Master. So this is meant to be sung by God's people. This is meant to be sung by the congregation, by the choir, by the people of God. So this is not just for David. It's not just a personal, explicit to David thing. This is for the people of God to sing. It's a congregational recognition of sin. It's Kind of something, confession of sin as congregations is something that's kind of drifted away from the evangelical church in a lot of ways. We want to kind of come, we want to be happy, we want to reflect on the simple and the happy things and just kind of forget the fact that we have sinned. However, very important that as a congregation, that as a people, that we are repentant, that we come to God with repentant hearts, knowing that we have offended God. Knowing that we need to be cleansed. Knowing that we need to be restored. and We need to be delivered over from our sin. And so this morning I want to pull out five key points from this psalm. We won't necessarily go verse by verse all the way through. But five key points from this psalm. And here they are. First, we have sinned against God. We have offended God. Second, we are born in sin. Third, we deserve separation from God. Fourth, we need cleansing. And fifth, we need the proper sacrifice. So first, we have sinned against God. Look again at verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So it says, against you, God, against you alone have I sinned. But as we read in 2 Samuel, we know that that's not true. We, We know that David has sinned against Uriah. I mean, he killed the man, right? We know that he sinned against Bathsheba. He committed adultery with her. We know that he has sinned against his men who are off in battle and he's chilling out committing adultery in his pals. We know he sinned against all of Israel. So how can he say here, against you God only have I sinned? 
Now that David was repenting, he realized that the eyes of God were upon him. The eyes of God were watching. That the stench of David's sin rose to the nostrils of God. That David is speaking in ultimate terms here. They say, God, ultimately, against you and you alone have I sinned. That you're the one who has to bear this. You're the one who had to see all of this. And it's against you, ultimately, God, that I have sinned. You remember back in the account of 2 Samuel that the chapter again began with David. He's seeking out his own pleasure. He saw a woman. He wanted to commit adultery with her. So he did. But then it ends with an expression of God's displeasure where it says, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Bringing us back to that idea that it was the displeasure of the Lord that was on David's mind at this moment as he is writing this psalm. And it's the same with us. I mean, when we sin against our spouse, we have certainly sinned against our spouse. When we sin against our child, we provoke our child to anger. We have sinned against our child. When we have road rage and start cursing out someone we don't even know, that is certainly a sin against that person. But ultimately, what we are doing is offending God. That we are sinning against God. That these are sins that Jesus himself would have to bear on our behalf on the cross. So we have offended God. We have all sinned against him. And this is the result of what we find in verse 5. Look at verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David knows that he is a born sinner. He's a born sinner. He was brought forth from his mother's womb a sinner. He's recognizing what theologians have long Described as total depravity. That we are totally depraved. That we are not born good. That we are totally depraved. Paul says in Romans 5, sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sin. So we're all born sinners because of the fall of Adam. You remember what Adam and Eve, they're they're in the Garden of Eden, they're living great, they're in paradise, they're in covenant with God themselves, they're working and they're keeping the garden and then the snake comes along, right? And the snake tempts Eve and then she gives to her husband and they both committed not just a simple little disobedient, oh, I'm just going to bite the apple. How many times does Nora eat something or take something off the ground and eat something when we say, stop, don't do that, and it ends up going in anyway. But this is Adam and Eve. They go ahead and disobey God. They eat something that they knew that they weren't supposed to be eating. So they were committing cosmic treason to God. That's simply what it is. This was treason. They were completely going against their God in the Garden of Eden. And so as a result of that, we are all born in sin. We are all born sinners. The entire scriptures attest To this fact, you can go from the beginning to the end and find this. That it is without a doubt that we are not born basically good. We are not born with even a clean slate. Where we come out clean and then we just kind of start adding on our own sins. No, we are conceived in sin. We are brought forth in iniquity. Romans 3.23, famous verse. For all have sinned, come short of the glory of God. 1 John says that if we say that we have not sinned, we, the truth is not in us. Jeremiah says that the heart is de- deceitful above all things and desperately sick. And on and on through scores of verses we could go to prove the fact that we are not born decent. We are not born good. We are in fact 
born incredibly sinful, like a hunting dog that's born and bred for hunting and instinctively has a nose for the game. So we all have been born and bred sinners with a nose for sin. It comes completely natural. And anybody who has had children knows you do not have to teach your child how to sin. And so because we have sinned against God and we have been born in sin, we all deserve to be separated from God. We all deserve to be separated from God. Look at verse 11. David is recognizing what he deserves, but he's asking not God, God not to give it to him. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. So again, David realizes what he deserves. He knew that he didn't deserve the presence of the Lord in his life. He knew that he didn't deserve the enabling presence and power of the Holy Spirit in our his life, and none of us deserve these things because of our sin. That our, our sin is, is keeping God's presence in our life at bay. That when we sin, we are disregarding the Holy Spirit of God and His power in our lives. So David here knows what he deserves, yet he begs God not to give it to him. God, please don't take your presence from me. Please don't take the enabling power of the Holy Spirit from me. Yet he doesn't want to lose being in God's presence. He doesn't want to lose that enabling power. Because he knows, like he says in Psalm 16, that in God's presence is fullness of joy. And that's what he wanted. So, all throughout this psalm, we see that David begs for God's mercy and cleansing as he continues. You see it in verse 2, you see it in verse 1, and verse 7, and 9, and 10, and 12. Actually, look down in verse 1. He says, have mercy on me, O God. He says, blot out my transgressions. He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Verse 9, blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. So he begins begging God for mercy in verse 1. And then he continues on and on. Cleanse me. Blot it out. Take it away from me. I don't want to live in sin. I want to be holy, God. But in verse 1, he begins with that begging of God for mercy. And in this plea for mercy... The implication is that he knows he is a sinner. But when you go to somebody, when you ask somebody for forgiveness, and you, maybe you might not say, what I did was wrong, and I did these five things against you, but if you go to somebody and say, I am so sorry, the implication is that you know what you did was wrong. And this is David here. That he's saying, have mercy on me, O God. Implication, because I know how wicked I am. I know how wrong I have been as a result of Nathan coming and telling me of my sin. But I want you to notice that David doesn't ask God for forgiveness in his current failures because of his past successes. That makes sense? He doesn't ask God to forgive him of his current failures because of his past successes. He doesn't say, have mercy on me, O God, and forget my sin because of all that I've done for you. He doesn't say, have mercy on me, O God, and forget all that I've done, because I went out and I killed Goliath for you, and that I did well for you in battle, and that I'm a pretty good king, and all that. No, he doesn't say anything like that. David knew his forgiveness would come only as a result of God's steadfast love and abundant mercy, not as the result of anything good that he has done. And you can see that over now with us, right? 
You can hear that in Ephesians 2. It's according to His mercy that He has saved us. And it's not of works of righteousness that we have done. It's only according to His mercy. And David is recognizing here with the same kind of language. In verse 2, he asks for washing, for cleansing. Notice between verses 1 and 2, he uses actually three different words to describe his sin. He says, transgression, iniquity, and he uses the word sin. He wants cleansing from all of it. He wants it completely eradicated out of his life. He wants a thorough washing, a total cleansing. Holiness is what he longed for. Purity is what he wanted. Verse 7, he says, purge me with hyssop. This is going back to Leviticus, which hyssop was this bunched up branch that was good for sprinkling. And he was asking to be purged with hyssop, another cleansing ritual. He says, wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Verse 10, he says, create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. David has to ask God for not even a rebuilding of his own heart. He wanted a brand new one created. He wanted a new heart created within him. The word create here is the same one in Genesis 1 verse 1 where it says God created the heavens and the earth. He wanted a completely created new heart. And he also wants his spirit to be renewed. He asked for the creation of the clean heart and the renewal of a right spirit within him that sin had decimated. But look with me as David begins to close this psalm in verse 16. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. For David, the offering of the sacrifices without a heart of brokenness and without a broken spirit would be meaningless. So the point is to have inner brokenness over sin along with the sacrifice. So that when we confess our sins to God, we, we must go with the proper spirit. That we go with the proper heart, with a broken spirit, with a broken heart, calling out to God for forgiveness. So we don't coldly go to God. We know we do something wrong. We don't go to God and say, okay, God, I, I sinned. Jesus died for my sins, so I'm claiming that. Okay, my, my, my sins are confessed. No, go coldly to God when we are broken and when we have a broken heart and we have a broken spirit. We go with those two asking God to forgive us on behalf of the finished work of Jesus Christ. So we have offended God and we have offended God because we have been born in sin and we all deserve as a result of this to be separated from God. We need cleansing And we need to go with the proper heart and with the proper spirit and with the proper sacrifice in order to properly repent to God. And I think we can sit here and think sometimes that, okay, well, Psalm 51 was written for a very serious sin, right? Well, this was a murderer. This was an adulterer. So this makes sense for somebody who has done those things to pray and all of that. That, that we're nowhere near that bad, that we haven't committed those kinds of sins, yet all the while forgetting what we learned in the Sermon on the Mount, where to look at somebody with lust is adultery, and to hate somebody with our heart is murder. So you see, we're all murdering adulterers in our hearts. And as a result of that, we need cleansing. And we need the proper sacrifice. And that proper sacrifice is Jesus. Let's pray.
Lord, we are so thankful for all that you have done on our behalf with Christ and his death for us, dying for our sins. Apart from that, we would say with David in verse 3 of this chapter that I know, that we know that our transgressions and our sin is ever before us. But we are so thankful that we can say with the hymn writer that our sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross and we don't bear it anymore. And Lord, we praise you for this. We thank you for our sacrifice, our perfect sacrifice that was without blemish and without spot, who took on our blemishes and our spots and our sin and transgressions and iniquity all onto himself. And so we come only on behalf of all that he has done before us, not in any good that we have done, but simply according to your mercy to us in Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.